Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington, in for Jordan Morey as your host again this week. Thanks for joining us. It's shaping up to be a busy summer in the world of Indiana law, so we have a lot of ground to cover today. Plus, Jordan joins us at the end of this week's headlines for an interview with Chief Judge John DiGiulio of the Indiana Northern District Court. So let's get started. Today is Wednesday, July 13th, 2022, and these are your headlines. First, let's start with an update on the ever-changing abortion landscape now that the U.S. Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. Indiana lawmakers were originally scheduled to hold a special session to discuss tax refunds last week. But once the Supreme Court handed down the ruling that ended the federal right to an abortion, the legislature added abortion to the special session's agenda and pushed the start of the session to July 25th to allow lawmakers time to consider a change in Indiana's abortion laws. Right now in Indiana, an abortion can only be performed within 20 weeks post-fertilization. It's widely expected that the Indiana General Assembly, which has a Republican supermajority, will enact stricter abortion regulations, if not an outright ban on the procedure. But Republican lawmakers have been tight-lipped about just how far any proposed abortion legislation might go. Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl recently spoke with both pro-choice and pro-life advocates about the future of abortion in Indiana. You can read her coverage of the evolving abortion debate in the July 6th issue of Indiana Lawyer. While the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in a Mississippi abortion case is the one making headlines, the high court also recently weighed in on an abortion case out of Indiana. That case, Box v. Planned Parenthood, involves Senate Enrolled Act 404, a 2017 law that, had it taken effect, would have required mature minors to notify their parents before getting an abortion, even if a court determined parental consent was not required. That law was enjoined five years ago before it could take effect, and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the injunction. But the Supreme Court sent the case back to the Seventh Circuit in 2020 for reconsideration after the High Court ruled in another abortion case, Jude Medical Services v. Russo. The Seventh Circuit upheld the injunction again on remand, so the case went back to SCOTUS. On June 30th, the High Court remanded the parental notification law to the Seventh Circuit again, this time for reconsideration in light of the Dobbs ruling last month that overturned Roe v. Wade. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita has already asked federal judges in Indiana to lift injunctions against other Indiana abortion laws. That request has already been granted in one case, according to the Associated Press. The injunction against a law banning a second trimester abortion procedure called dilation and evacuation, also known as a dismemberment abortion, has been lifted. We'll keep up with all of these cases, so check back with us for periodic updates. Rounding out this week's court news, we have an update on the lawsuit filed this spring by the Bail Project. You may remember that the Bail Project, represented by the ACLU of Indiana, sued to block House Enrolled Act 1300, which limits who the organization can bail out of jail. The law defines a charitable bail organization in a way that includes the Bail Project, and it prevents any person charged with a violent crime from being bailed out by a charitable bail group. Also, Anyone charged with a new felony who has a past conviction of a violent crime can't receive assistance from a charitable bail organization. The Bail Project argued in the Indiana Southern District Court that the legislation violated its rights under the First Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. 
It asked for an injunction to keep the legislation from taking effect on July 1st. But Judge James P. Hanlon declined to enter the injunction, ruling that the act of paying bail is not speech under the First Amendment. Also, he agreed with the defendant in the case, the commissioner of the Indiana Department of Insurance, that the law is related to the legitimate government interest of, quote, regulating major actors in the bail industry differently based upon their distinct responsibilities and accountability in the criminal justice system, end quote. The bail project has filed a notice of appeal, but hadn't filed a brief to the Seventh Circuit at our deadline. We'll keep you updated as the appeal moves forward. Now, I'm going to send it over to Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe, who has some news about changes coming to the Lake Superior Court bench. Katie? For the first time in history, a woman of Asian descent has joined the bench in Lake County. Rehana Adat Lopez, previously the director and attorney for the Lake County CASA program, was appointed judge of the Lake Superior Court Civil Division by Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb in February. Her official robing ceremony will take place later this month. Adat Lopez fills the vacancy left by Judge Diane Ross Boswell, who died unexpectedly last year. Adat Lopez graduated from Valparaiso Law School and served as a team member for the Family Recovery Court. Before she worked with CASA, Adat Lopez worked as an attorney for the Indiana Department of Child Services, and she also has experience practicing as an attorney in private firms and as a solo practitioner. Adat Lopez was chosen from five finalists and was officially sworn in on March 31st. On July 21st, the Lake County Bar Association and the Women's Lawyers Association will host an official robing ceremony for Adat Lopez in Lake County. Alfredo Estrada, the first Latino president of the Lake County Bar Association, will perform the robing. As the first judge of Asian descent to be appointed in Lake County, Adat Lopez says this is a historical event for the community. I feel very privileged to represent the Asian community. While the Asian community is a smaller percentage of Indiana and Lake County's population in comparison to other minority groups, many of the members of the community are professionals, business owners that make a vital contribution to Lake County and Indiana's economy and success but they've never been represented in the judiciary. And I believe everybody deserves to be represented and also to feel comfortable coming to the court. After being born in Uganda and immigrating to the U.S. as a child, Adat Lopez says she was excited and overwhelmed by her appointment. She never imagined she'd end up on the bench. I felt truly blessed to be given the opportunity. When you come from nothing, you work hard to get where you are. And you can kind of understand people of all walks of life. Estrada describes Adat Lopez as being calm and mild-mannered and as someone his own daughter can look up to as a woman of color. Judge Adat Lopez's background as an immigrant, as a refugee, as a naturalized citizen, as an attorney, executive of apartment, and as an Asian-American, female Asian-American, a minority woman, I think he provides the courts, particularly in Lake County, with the ability to relate to its community and to those they serve. Check out the Indiana Lawyer website for more coverage on Judge Adat Lopez's robing ceremony later this month. Thanks, Katie. Coming back to Indianapolis, we have some lighter news for you from the Benjamin Harrison presidential site. On July 1st, Senior Judge Sarah Evans Barker of the Indiana Southern District Court presided over her 20th naturalization ceremony at the presidential site. That same day, the site's new citizenship plaza was dedicated and named in her honor. The new Sarah Evans Barker Citizenship Plaza includes a book of history that honors the more than 1,500 citizens Barker has naturalized on the grounds of the museum. Plus, 
three monuments made from Indiana limestone that display copies of the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, and an 89-foot flagpole commemorating President Benjamin Harris's call for American school children to recite the Pledge of Allegiance and for schools and public buildings to fly the flag. Charles Hyde, president and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, honored Barker, saying, quote, it's hard to find a public figure today so universally admired, end quote. For her part, Barker told the new U.S. citizens that America is an unfinished symphony, so their jobs are to help the country write a new movement. Head over to our website for photos of the new plaza and the naturalization ceremony. As we start to wrap up today's headlines, we've got some big law firm news to report. The firm formerly known as Katz Corn Cunningham has merged with Stahl Keenan Ogden and will now operate under the SKO name. The merger discussions began about a year ago. Offer Corin, a co-founding shareholder at Katz Corn Cunningham, said the firm had turned down other merger offers but decided to join forces with Stahl Keenan Ogden because, quote, we believed coming together would provide greater opportunities for our clients and communities as part of a fully integrated and purposeful regional firm, end quote. The combined firm will have 45 attorneys in the Circle City. It will continue to operate at KKC's downtown office, located in the Emily Building on Senate Avenue. Maryland recently sat down with the leaders of both firms to get all the details of the merger and what comes next. You can read her story in the July 20th issue of Indiana Lawyer. Okay, let's wrap it up by sending it back to Katie for a preview of a fun story she's working on for the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. Elkhart attorney Tim Shelley has a long relationship with historic preservation, dating back to his childhood. As a kid, Shelley often visited his grandparents in their 100-year-old home in Fountain Square, Indianapolis. Back then, his grandfather made sure he was educated on historical sites in the city, like the Benjamin Harris House, to instill in him an appreciation for architecture and art. Today, that passion is still running through Shelley's veins. He dove headfirst into renovating historic properties in the 1980s and has since become a force in Indiana's historic preservation circles. I describe old houses like an infant child. It's always there and always needs something. Shelley has renovated handfuls of homes and properties across the state, including an 1874 neoclassical mansion that he lives in, previously owned by Colonel Charles G. Kahn, whose Kahn Instrument Company once held status as the world's largest manufacturer of band instruments. Shelley, a distant relative of famous Hoosier painter T.C. Steele, also purchased and brought back to life Steele's boyhood home in Waveland, Indiana. The house is used for artists and local youth for educational purposes and artistic retreats. Over the years, Shelley has worked with the Elkhart Historic and Cultural Preservation Commission, chaired Indiana Landmarks, and served on the National Trust for Historic Preservation's Board of Advisors. In recognition of decades spent advocating for Indiana's historic buildings, Shelley will be honored this fall as the recipient of Indiana Landmarks 2022 Williamson Prize for Outstanding Leadership in Historic Preservation. He says there are other preservationists who deserve recognition, but he's grateful that his work can shed a light on the importance of preserving Indiana history. Stay tuned for my coverage of Shelley and of his preservation work. Back to you, Olivia. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit theindianalawyer.com for the latest news from the Hoosier legal profession. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear Jordan's interview with Chief Judge DiGiulio. Taft. 
Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Northern District of Indiana Chief Judge John DiGiulio with us via Zoom. Judge DiGiulio, thanks so much for joining us this week. You're very welcome, Jordan. How are you? I'm well, thanks. As some background, Judge DiGiulio was nominated to the Northern District Bench in 2010 by President Barack Obama after senior judge Alan Sharp died in 2009. On March 4, 2010, the United States Senate Committee on the Judiciary voted to send DiGiulio's nomination to the full Senate, which was confirmed on May 11, 2010, in a voice vote. Fast forward a little more than a decade later, and DiGiulio became chief judge on June 1, 2021. Judge DiGiulio is a native of Hammond, Indiana, and earned his bachelor's degree from Notre Dame and his Juris Doctor from Valpo University School of Law in 1981. Right after law school, uh, DiGiulio served as an associate for his Cherville law firm for eight years, uh, during which time he also served part-time as a deputy prosecutor and public defender for Lake County and as a city councilman in Hammond. From 1989 until 93, DiGiulio served as a prosecuting attorney for Lake County. And then from 93 until 99, he was the United States Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana. A little more background on you. In 1999, he briefly served as a partner in the South Bend, Indiana office uh, of the Barnes and Thorberg Law Firm before taking a job with People's Bank SB slash Northwest Indiana Bank Corp in 99, from 99 until 2001. He served as a senior vice president and trust officer and from 2001, was the bank's general counsel and corporate secretary until becoming a federal judge. So I think I told your whole life story, but um, That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> to begin with, um, uh, why did you decide to uh, pursue a, a career in law? And was it always your intention to, uh, to become a federal judge? I wanted to be a lawyer from about the time I was in seventh grade, believe it or not, that was my goal. And that was pretty much the only uh, occupation that I ever really thought about. Uh, I loved reading about history and government, and uh, that was just always my calling in my mind. Honestly, I never really thought about becoming a judge along the way. I always thought more in terms of becoming a prosecutor, and then once I was a prosecutor, thought about maybe joining the Department of Justice in some fashion. And so I was so fortunate uh, that those opportunities uh, came about. And then becoming judge in 2010 was just amazing. Again, just something I hadn't really planned for, uh, but when the opportunity presented itself, I knew absolutely that that's something I would love to do because it's an opportunity to make a difference, uh, to respect the rule of law, which I think is so important in our democracy, and to serve justice, which, you know, sounds corny, but uh, something I've always believed in since I was very young. So I've been very, um, very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to serve on the federal bench. How did your time as a U.S. attorney prepare you for the bench? Well, I think uh, in a practical way, it gave me exposure to uh, the federal courts in terms of rules of procedure, rules of evidence, um, the guide, the sentencing guidelines, which can be very technical and complicated, uh, gave me exposure to the types of cases that are 
are uh, litigated in great part in the federal court. But I think also um, what was equally important is I've always viewed the role of a prosecutor is trying to do justice. You have a unique opportunity to affect justice in what you do, how you investigate a case, um, how you prosecute a case, and how you seek to resolve that case. And it's very important that prosecutors, I think, are, are fair-minded and try to achieve a result that is fair under the circumstances. So, and that's in great part what you do as a judge too, in particular in terms of criminal sentencing, especially. So uh, I think uh, not only in terms of the, the practical considerations, but in terms of um, your goals uh, for the end of a case, uh, that was very helpful, again, as a prosecutor to try to affect justice. And I think uh, that's what judges try to do while still do adhering to the law, which is your, your foremost duty as a judge. Uh, obviously, I know we're a couple of years into it now, but the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in some heavier caseloads. How has the Northern District responded? Well, thank goodness for our IT department, because if not for them, we would not be able to function. We have to give people access to the courts, but we've had to do it in a way to protect them. And so we've had to make a number of changes like courts throughout the country uh, to ensure that we could operate while still protecting uh, the public who, who has to have access to the court. So we're doing a lot more remotely. Um, and the CARES Act passed by Congress has allowed us to do that. So a lot of the pretrial proceedings and civil hearings are conducted remotely uh, to prevent people from having to come into court. And then in terms of those cases that require uh, to be uh, addressed in person, uh, primarily uh, trials, um, we've had to do a number of things to kind of uh, reassemble how, how the courtroom is staged. Uh, juries know at, at that point, we've kind of gone back to our traditional practices, but we moved juries from the jury box into the gallery so they had more room to spread out. We moved our witnesses from the witness stand to the jury box, and we just kind of spread people out throughout the courtroom as much as we could uh, we don't have sidebars in the traditional sense where the attorneys come up to the bench anymore, but they communicate via uh, microphone and headsets. So our IT people, again, have really done a wonderful job in allowing us to, uh, again, maintain access to the courts while still in great part protecting uh, people who, who, who have, have to uh, litigate cases in our courts. Uh, it's been a little over a year now, but how have your duties changed uh, since becoming chief judge? Yeah, I became chief judge in uh, January 1st of 2020, uh, just a couple of months into the pandemic. And uh, being chief judge is, a, is an important position, and it takes up a lot of time, uh, obviously. COVID's been a great part of that because there isn't a week that goes by that there isn't some issue related to COVID, you know, do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Uh, to what extent are the courthouses opened? What do we do if, if there's an exposure? Uh, so there's so many types of COVID issues that have, have, have arisen um, since I became chief judge. Additionally, as chief judge, you're basically responsible along with your clerk, uh, and thank goodness for our clerk and, and uh, his staff, uh, you're responsible for 
all of the administrative issues associated with the courts. So it could be budget, it could be personnel issues, it could be policy issues, uh, it could be attorney discipline. Um, so, so many things that go into the operation of the court. Uh, and, and a big part of that is, is the policies that uh, we develop for the efficient operation of the courts, as well as complying with our administrative office of the U.S. courts in terms of the policies uh, that they've asked us, us to uh, adopt. So um, there likely isn't a day that goes by that I haven't had some type of a, uh, an administrative duty to address, but it's an honor to serve as chief judge and uh, it's an important role in our courts. So I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, in your opinion, uh, what are some of the most uh, significant issues the federal judiciary is seeing today, and uh, especially in the Northern Indiana District? I think one of the uh, most serious issues, and I've, I've seen this uh, throughout my term as a judge, is the uh, incredible number of pro se litigants in our courts. It's really dramatic how many people uh, seek uh, to address their claims without counsel. And uh, sometimes it's inability to afford counsel. Sometimes it's the inability to find uh, an attorney who's willing to take a particular case. But we have a tremendous number of, of pro se litigants. So uh, trying to address those filings, uh, be respectful and patient for those litigants, obviously, who don't know the rules of law and the rules of procedure, uh, to give them fair opportunity to present their claims while still adhering to uh, the rules of law that, that must be applied. And, um, and sometimes uh, obtaining counsel for them. The Southern District is a bit more advanced than the Northern District in terms of the process of appointing counsel. But we recently created a volunteer attorney panel. Thank goodness a large group of attorneys have indicated a willingness to volunteer to represent pro se litigants and, the, and that process uh, has worked pretty well. So we're getting attorneys appointed to more cases that formerly would have been handled uh, by the pro se litigant themselves. Uh, but that's, that's a tremendous issue in our courts as it is throughout the country. Of course, operations during a pandemic is always a challenge. Um, and it seems like the numbers go up and down. So you're always reacting to that. And judicial security, uh, is another important issue. The security concerns throughout the country uh, have become dramatic. And, and of course, managing conflicts for judges is an important issue uh, because some of the recent events that have occurred. So we're very mindful uh, of our need to avoid conflicts. And a lot of that uh, begins with uh, identifying conflicts and using automated processes to identify cases in which a conflict might exist. Uh, because that's all part of maintaining the trust of the American people in our courts is to manage and avoid conflicts. And so much of what we do relies on, on the good faith uh, of the American people in what we do. Public institutions can't function unless the people uh, they serve have trust and faith in what you do. Uh, so that's, that's also a big part of what the federal courts are focused on right now. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, you kind of jumped ahead. I had a question uh, regarding judicial security for later on, but I'm going to kind of uh, build off what you just said there. I guess, you know, um, there's been some statistics that have gone out that the number of um, threats towards uh, federal judicial officers have uh, increased over the last few years, including this past year. Has the Northern District felt similar issues? And um, I'm going to build off that further and say, you know, does the public's perception of the Supreme Court influence the Northern District? Well, I, I can tell you that uh, we've had some incidents, I, I, you know, I'd rather not talk about them publicly, but we've, we've had some incidents. We're very security conscious, as is our U.S. Marshal, who's, who's been kind of our leader in improving security. Some of that has to do with home security. Some of that has to do with uh, just helping to educate judges to be a little bit mindful about the security risks that exist and what we should do. Uh, to be mindful of it, and also the security concerns in our courthouses and federal buildings. Uh, so we've we've ramped up security in that sense and just tried to be a little bit more mindful. There's continuing efforts in the United States Congress to enhance judicial security. One of the important aspects of that is try to remove information off the internet that would allow people to identify where judges live and personal access or personal information that individuals could use to breach the security of a federal judge. So we're very security conscious and are working to try to improve security, not only in a physical sense, but also to be more mindful that these risks exist and that we all need to think a little bit uh, about how we go about living our day-to-day lives. Uh, In terms of the Supreme Court, I can't really say that I've experienced anything to suggest that any concerns that exist about um, some of the recent uh, decisions have uh, maybe carried down to us. We've have had some regular protests outside of some of our federal buildings, but they've been very peaceful and they haven't been specifically uh, targeted towards our judges or our courts. Um, So, uh, I think I cannot say that any of that's been directed specifically towards our courts or any of our judges. Uh, I wonder what is the Northern District's relationship like with the with the Southern Indiana District Court? I think it's an excellent relationship. Uh, for my own part, uh, I went through the nomination and confirmation process with Chief Judge Pratt and Judge Stinson. So we became very close throughout that process. And I know all the judges, at least the district court judges in the Southern District and have great respect for them. Uh, We are very cognizant that they are carrying one of the heaviest caseloads in the country. Frankly, I don't know how they do it, uh, but they do a tremendous job of managing that caseload and doing it in a timely fashion. So you have excellent judges there. And we've had some judges who've helped out, uh, both uh, district court judges and magistrate judges, who've helped the Southern District a a bit in terms of some of their caseload. Uh, But I have great respect for the judges of that district and personal relationships with several of them. And so our, our relationship is excellent. A topic, uh, it's an issue, obviously, a lot of places, with, but with marijuana legal in both Illinois and Michigan, has that impacted the number of drug cases that have come through the northern Indiana district in, in recent years? I would say no. I think the drug cases are still a mainstay in the northern district of Indiana. 
Uh, some of the Department of Justice policies have sometimes caused those numbers to fluctuate, <clears throat> basically to the extent they want to continue to prosecute what might otherwise be characterized as, as state-type prosecutions. That was kind of an issue uh, under the Obama administration and the, the uh, Trump administration. But I would say that the cases involving drug prosecution in the district uh, are still very strong. Uh, just anecdotally, <clears throat> very few of them involve marijuana unless they are like large manufacturing cases. So we're, most of our drug cases now are focused on heroin, methamphetamine, fentanyl, uh, all very dangerous drugs. You still see some, some cocaine, uh, but the number of marijuana cases are fairly few. What is something uh, lawyers should know about you and the uh, Northern Indiana District Court that they might not know? That's a great, <laughs> that's a great question. I hope what I would want them to know is that I am so respectful of attorneys and their role uh, in our justice system. I try to be uh, patient. I try to be respectful of them. I've been so fortunate to uh, have so many good experiences with members of the bar in court and in trial, uh, particularly the level of preparedness that they show and the level of civility that they show, which is very important for myself and I think most judges. Uh, we want attorneys to come into court to be prepared, uh, to be professional, and to treat each other with civility, as well as the court, almost universally. That's what I see from the attorneys who I've had in court. So I feel very fortunate to uh, have such a high quality bar present in the court. Uh, but again, I would want them to know that I'm very respectful of them the difficulty of their jobs and their role in uh, the administration of justice. That'll wrap up this week's episode. Thanks again to Northern Indiana District Chief Judge John DeGiulio for joining us. Uh, as always, you can catch up on previous episodes of The Indiana Lawyer Podcast on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service.